Welcome to the IoT Podcast Show. I'm your host, Tom White. Uh, today, I'm joined by Tim Panagos. Tim is the CTO of Microshare.io. Microshare bring smart building solutions to life. They also provide enterprise-scale IoT integration for real-time infection control, predictive cleaning, occupancy, and asset zoning in smart buildings without sacrificing any privacy. With COVID-19 making health metrics a matter of life and death right now, Microshare's IoT application is extremely relevant and extremely popular also. The company is on track to do 32 million in turnover and they have just closed an additional round of funding. Tim, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. My pleasure, Tom. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Tim, can we just kick off by just explaining a little bit about your background in IoT and how you got into this position here at Microshare? Certainly. Um, I am not a classic IoT technologist. Um, I really come at this from a career that has been mostly about um, artificial intelligence of various kinds. And um, I don't mean that to sound like the super sexy kind of AI. I mean, the this is for banks to run their operations better kind of AI. Um, and I started right. in that in, back in the 90s um, and have kind of tracked it through. So my career has really been about the application of data to improve businesses and um, necessarily the data integration, data engineering that goes along with data acquisition. And that's kind of the perspective we brought into Microshare with IoT, which is for us, it's not really about the devices or about the network, the protocols, a lot of the things that I see um, classic IoT um, having to have been obsessed about over the last decade. Um, what we're really looking at is working from the solution towards the data acquisition. Um, and that's kind of what Microshare is about. So our angle on IoT is give us the data so that we can do good things for the business. And I think closing that gap between the uh, device-oriented IoT side, the network-oriented, the device-oriented, and the you know businesses that have um, problems running uh, operations that they want insights for, and we're kind of trying to be the glue that that sticks those two things together um, in a commercial way. Yeah, fantastic. Could you briefly talk a little bit about the sensing as a service model that you have and the importance of this, Tim, within the development of smart buildings, uh, and particularly, obviously, in the context of COVID-19 and everything we've been through over the past year? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I think part and parcel of what I just answered about my background, I think one of the key things that have been missing in the mainstream part of the market for people who want to consume IoT, who aren't early adopters, is really nailing down a business model that works for everybody. And so sensing as a service is really the business model that we've adopted and so far has been quite popular, which really um, doesn't ask the business to care about devices or networks and make choices in those cases, pay specific fees, buy specific devices, manage batteries, you know, all the things that one must do to operate an IoT network. Instead, we say, look, there's really you're paying for the data. And in, and in reality, you're really paying for the insights. And so let's try to wrap all of that into a single business model so that you're not 
buying devices and owning devices. That's not most businesses don't want to uh, get involved at that layer. At that layer, they just want the information that's going to help them operate. So we really kind of roll everything together into a single kind of subscription fee, and we manage all the devices, we manage the network, we manage the data, um, we do all of the things that get the business to the insight, and that allows people to. Um, kind of bypass a lot of the science projects that I think mm -hmm. IoT has been plagued with, um, where people kind of kick the tires and try things out. And I think there's just been a tremendous amount of failure in that case because we're asking, we're asking people to uh, both envision what's possible with these technologies, but then also break down a lot of barriers on their own. And uh, early adopters can do that. People with really strong use cases, um, deep deep wallets. Um, have been able to do that in the past, but the mainstream in the market doesn't look like that. Um, and so that's really what Sensing a Service, I think, is trying to do, is couple the, the business model to um, what's now available in the technology space, because I think we're in a, in a unique position, maybe in the history of IoT, but certainly over the last five years, we've got a plethora of devices. We've got some fairly mature um, networking technologies. We've got um, cloud computing. We've got ubiquitous AI tools. Um, and really, the challenge is stitching all those things together so that people don't have to wade through the choices and do the integrations. And that's kind of where we've been with that with that business model. Uh, so I think it's the business model that, that can unlock that value. Still got to do all the stuff, right? Stuff to pick the devices, manage the network, all these things. But let's do it for the business so that they don't also have to become IoT experts in order to get the advantages of, of, of using data to manage their business, right? Yeah, I think I think it's a really nice model. I mean, we see a lot of um, software as a service models in the tech industry. Um, commercially, it makes sense from a long-term revenue perspective for the consumer or from the company that may be entering into that agreement. Um, there isn't the high upfront cost that traditionally would have if you were buying something outright. Yeah. It's the support, it's the fact that you can have this ongoing maintenance and ongoing relationship. Um, and it's really transcending lots of different industries. Um, curiously, um, from all of the podcasts that we've done and a lot of my work in IoT, um, there, there aren't as many people up, up, up taking solutions as a service, uh, as I see. And, it, and it's interesting to know that. And I, and, I, and I wonder if it's the encapsulation of the end-to-end -end IoT program or service offering that they're, they're trying to give, whether they find that quite difficult or not. Um, but, but I'd like to see more of it in the future, as I'm, as I'm sure some of the people that you're working would um, you know, would as well. I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? Just just in general. I mean, do do you think a lot more companies will be offering this from a specific IoT perspective? I think they. I think the answer is yes. I think it's inevitable, as you said, Tom. SaaS is the dominant model for software um, now, um, and you know that's radically changed over the last 10, 20 years, right? From enterprise software buys now to SaaS adoption. And um, it's quite natural, I think, for that to extend into uh, the IoT space, the AI space. Um, the challenge, though, with it is, of course, that we're not a pure SaaS. It isn't pure software because there are these clumsy devices. You know, there's a physical component, a very real important physical component to IoT that makes this 
very different from an operational model as a company than a pure SaaS, you know, let's say Salesforce, right? Salesforce can light up uh, a new account, um, you know, like that. You know, they don't have to worry about the logistics of delivering devices, installing devices, managing connectivity. So in, in a lot of ways, we are, we're more like a telecom company than we are like uh, a Salesforce, right? With this pure mm -hmm. software. And I think that's part of the challenge is we've got companies that are generally either masters of the physical domain and logistics of shipping and procurement, or we've got people who mastered the software side and can do things at scale and provision quickly and deliver good service. And what we're trying to do at Microsoft and, and it, um, Microsoft Microshare is quite difficult is put those two things together and be good at the logistics and good at the software and kind of slide those two things together. So I think it's inevitable that more people will do it this way, but it is really tricky uh, yeah. to get right. It's really tricky. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm just sort of thinking out loud here. I guess if, if in the future you had more standardization around hardware, let's say sensors, off the shelf, because a lot of hardware these days is off the shelf outside of the IoT industry, right. then perhaps what you could lock into is firmware updates and what have you to actually make that specific for what your functionality is. Because yeah, you're right, you know, Salesforce can just fire up an account, you know, in a couple of seconds and, and, and there you are, you've got access to everything, you've got your tenant registers. Yeah. Uh, not quite not quite as easy when you've got to ship out sensors and hardware in the post, etc. cetera. Uh, but, but not impossible, clearly. Indeed, and and we have specialized in the LoRaWAN ecosystem, which is a, a pretty popular branch of the LP WAN. So we deal yeah. mostly with sensing. Um, I guess it's implicit in the sensing as a service, right? So there is actuation, but when we talk about IoT, I'm really mean long range, low power, generally battery operated sensing. And you know, we buy. We don't make any any hardware. We buy all of these things off the shelf within the LoRaWAN space. So there's a, a motion sensor, there's a very popular feedback sensor. Um, and so what we do is kind of buy these things out of the lower ecosystem. Um, and LoRa is a fairly decent specification. Um, is a lot of gaps, don't get me wrong. Uh, the data from all these devices is radically different. Um, so it's still a challenge to take, you know, even something simple like a temperature and humidity sensor, you know, almost every uh, manufacturer and lower offers a temperature and humidity. It's you know sort of the table stakes uh, for sensing, but they all use a different data format. Even though the data is quite simple, um, mm -hmm. you still have to deal with that vendor specifics. So we have this specific layer that does that translation, um, and ultimately our goal is to get all the data to look the same. You know, standard JSON um, presentations, so that the downstream can really divorce itself from the details of the sensor, uh, the details of the network. Um, so I think we are at that point where the standards are good enough to really um, allow a company like ours to exist. I think they will get better and better, clearer and clearer as the uh, integrated ecosystem comes together. And you know, I think, as you said in the intro, we do a lot of different things. Um, we tend to focus on what we call the built space, you know, commercial real estate, uh, another way of saying it for the most part. Um, but we don't focus on a single device or a single use case. We tend to really be aiming at uh, heterogeneous uh, kind of uh, deployment. So we're going to necessarily deal with lots of different types of sensors, lots of different vendors of sensors, lots of different networks of sensors. You know, there's public and private lower networks. They're all a little bit different. And we, 
want to boil out all of the distinctions so that the data looks the same, the insights are, are viable, and that necessarily also allows us to kind of pick the best vendors and mix and match as we as we go into the future. So as you're, you know, to your point, you know, managing at the firmware layer may not even be necessary because I can let um, I can let the standard speak for itself, and then I can let the vendors compete for price and reliability, um, battery life, um, duration. Uh, you know, these kind of principles that kind of matter most to a company like mine. And and that, that's I think really hasn't been possible until now. Um, mm. And like I said, the, the standards are just going to get stronger. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to, just to touch on the solutions then. So uh, for those that aren't aware of MicroShare, so your solution really encompasses all components that will form a, a smart building, uh, homes, uh, commercial, etc. How does your solution address, for instance, security and data privacy? Yeah, um, I think you mentioned in an earlier um, question, I, I breezed past it, you know, uh, contact tracing has been a real focus of ours over the last year. Um, and at this time, literally this date last year, I could have told you that we had in mind contact tracing, but it was it was maybe a matter of days. Right? So uh, January of 2020, um, never thought a moment about it, but um, we kind of onboarded that as part of this heterogeneous uh, approach to data. And contact tracing, as opposed to temperature and humidity of a space obviously carries with it a lot more um, weight of privacy and security um, necessarily. And so that's been a, a big focus of ours from the start. Um, we're called MicroShare, which may strike people as odd if you think of us as an IoT company, but really at a fundamental level, what we're really um, hitting at is the need to reimagine how data is collected, um, owned, and then distributed so that people can take advantage of that data to make better decisions across an ecosystem, right? Mm. Um, and the built space, right, as you said, uh, offices and factories and airports and prisons and um, homes, um, these are often the intersection of ecosystems. Um, where you've got uh, a building owner and a tenant and a customer and a visitor um, and all of these sort of entities interacting within the same common uh, environment all of which being measured their behaviors their contacts their temperatures their um, their presence um, all of which I think really ought to be thought of as um, whether the regulation has caught up to it or not by the way really ought to be thought of as belonging to all of the individuals, the people who are being sensed at any given time. So at a fundamental level, what we've built is the ability to recognize that a piece of data belongs to both the owner of the device, right, the person who stood up the IoT network, which is, you know, where I think most people's heads are, well, I own the device, I own the data, but also give that co-ownership to the person who is measured, Tom. So if you are in your office, um, the building owner may have stuck up a um, a device to measure um, whether somebody's there, probably a PIR kind of sensor. And obviously they're going to go use that for their reasons. But since you're in that spot, ought you not to also have a say about what's going to be done with the data about the fact that it's measured your presence? Um, and sort of, you know, dumb motion sensing, 
um, room level temperature. Is that really interesting from a privacy perspective? Maybe not. It's debatable. Mm -hmm. But when you get into um, video, when you get into audio, when you get into um, contact tracing, when you get into sensing that's coming off the device that's on your wrist there, um, mm -hmm. this can be quite personal. Um, mm -hmm. And what we really want to be able to do is say, look, we don't want to lock things down so much that businesses can no longer use data to operate because there's a lot of goodness a lot of goodness to the business a lot of goodness to consumers and i think a lot of goodness to society from a sustainability perspective more efficient use of space more efficient use of resources healthier um, areas for people to interact all of that is a societal good um, and data will unlock that for us but we shouldn't be giving up individual liberties at the same time so that's really the balance that we're after with microshare yeah yeah and, 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 and why is it that um, this is a fairly crucial moment for the data privacy debate in your opinion because you, you you talk about that at the moment but specifically right now what is it that makes it so poignant yeah I think it's a it's a very crucial moment for IOT data specifically and I think it's because there's been a lot of um, publication about the excesses of the online data collection and use and we're seeing you know the social media really be the lightning rod for a lot of that and you see legislation that's uh, cropping up certainly GDPR is probably the the, the most obvious mm -hmm. of those um, legislations and though that data was kind of born from this online behaviors it clearly is written in a way that um, also embraces IoT, although I, I really think that people's awareness of what is being measured about them in the real world um, is a great lag behind what's being their awareness of what's being measured about their online behaviors. Mm. And from my perspective, being uh, well educated in this spot, I think the physical is even some orders of magnitude more dangerous than the online because I always have the choice of turning off my computer, yeah. um, putting my cell phone down. But the video cameras and the audio recording and the things that are going on around me that I may not be aware of, they're not part of my personal sphere, I can't really control those things. And that's so the, the risk, I think, is that the public, um, the scare that people, that the press particularly is trying to introduce, really catches on that the regulators, the lawmakers um, become too heavy handed and they start locking things down so that we can't um, get data. And if we do that, I think we're going to set the industry back. And what's really worrisome to me, Tom, is that people, businesses, are not going to stop operating based on data, no matter what the regulators say. Um, if we really enforce something draconian, then it'll force these things to go underground. The data will be operated in secret. And I think that's exactly what we don't want as a society. I think we want to open it up. I think we want the light shining directly into these areas so that everyone's aware of what's being collected and why, what the uses are, um, and make uh, decisions individually and collectively about what are good uses, what are bad uses. But I think it's it would be foolish of us to think we could stuff the genie back in the bottle and say, just because we can regulate it, people won't do these evil things. Mm. Um, evil happens in the darkness. It doesn't happen in the light, in my experience. So that's really, I think, what we need to be doing as a society is saying, look, uh, these kind of technologies are inevitable. Let's open them up 
so that we can all appreciate what's going on and then come up with, you know, thoughtful, um, thoughtful patterns for, um, for handling it and, and balancing that privacy problem. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, no, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic view on things. Um, it's, it's worth noting you mentioned GDPR there because obviously MicroShare is, is predominantly doing a lot of work in Europe and of course GDPR being a European regulation. Um, it, it's not actually North American based, is it GDPR? It's, it doesn't govern anything in North America, but only companies that may interact, is that right? Or something like that? I think, I think they... That's correct, Tom. So, you know, any multinational has to deal with GDPR just because mm. if, the, uh, if your, um, <laughs> your skirt um, includes yeah. anything in Europe, then then you're, you're touching on it, which is a lot of our our customers are international or they're at the scale where yeah. they have to worry about that. Yeah. But you also see legislation globally in the U.S. Um, uh, no exception. Mostly large states like California Data Protection um, is patterned after GDPR that came out right. um, in, into effect last year. Very similar provisions. You see similar legislation. New York State. So we haven't yet done it as a nation but you're seeing it in some really significant population areas. So even if you've just got an, uh, an American focus or a North American focus, you're already going to be um, needing to deal with um, some very similar um, uh, challenges that, that GDPR has put into the European space. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just inevitable. You're going to see, unless, uh, well, you know, the more authoritarian regimes um, aside, I think you're going to see this globally. Um, people following this pattern and, and rolling it out more, and the, the press is just making that more likely as as these you know um, excesses become more public. Yeah, well, I think the I think the awareness factor of this is really important, and you talk about the fact of you know you can turn off your camera, you can buy cases on Amazon that enable your camera to be turned off, right, and bits and pieces. Um, but it's the data that's being collected around you. I'm quite interested to learn about the phrase that you've used and that you've, you've kind of gone public to mention the, the data marketplace, right? So that's really, really interesting. And I like the fact that you're talking about bring it, bring it to the forefront. Don't push it underground because when it goes underground, it's hard to control and evil happens in the darkness, right? Um, can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by a data marketplace, Tim? Sure. Um, you know, a lot is being talked about, certainly with online stuff, about how companies are collecting it and selling this data and making a fortune based on it. Um, the reality is I don't think there's that as much money in actually selling data as most people believe. Um, there is a lot of money in keeping data proprietary and learning how to mine it and use it as a strategic weapon. You see that with Google and their ad targeting. You see that with Facebook um, similarly. Um, but I think there's a great fear of um, what's being done with the data that is being collected because I have a relationship perhaps with Facebook, but you know the, the thousands of entities behind them that they may be selling the data onto uh, I, you know, talk about the darkness, right? There's a, a great unknown there. And um, so people are quite nervous about that. And what I think is great about a marketplace um, is that, you know, in my mind, it's the classic European marketplace, open air stalls that are available. People can walk around and shop and you may not be buying, but you can see what's on, on offer. And I think that's kind of the, uh, the mental image that I have about what we need to do with data which is not drive these transactions underground, but open them up 
and allow the individuals to participate in the marketplace as well, to be um, active, engaged participants. Because if you're contributing data, you ought to know about it. And if you're contributing data, you also should have the opportunity to participate economically in the value that's created from it, whether that's massive amounts of economic value, you know, thousands of pounds of dollars a year, or whether it's cents, um, it's still an economic value you should be aware of and have the opportunity to, to participate in. And um, my most controversial stance about this for the IoT crowd is honestly that the world already has too many devices. Mm -hmm. um, we have too many sensors already. What we lack is the ability to take the data from the sensors we've already deployed and get that, that content to the people who want that information. And the analogy I use is, you know, I have a, I have a little dog running around here somewhere, might, might have shown up on camera. Um, if everybody who wants to know where he is has to bolt a sensor onto his collar, um, eventually it gets ridiculous. You get one on there, it's fine. Two, three, four, five, ten, because, you know, my, jur my, uh, my town, my council wants to know if he's licensed and, and is he in the bounds of my, of my yard. Um, uh, my veterinarian wants to know um, health. I've got a, a tracking company that, you know, it, we can't all be bolting sensors onto things. And even a room, if you go into a conference room in an office building, you look around, there's a lot of protuberances now from the ceilings and the walls. And, you know, how many of these things can we, can we stand up? When actually what we ought to do is have the first person put the sensor on and then be able to share that data to all the people who have an interest in that information. But of course, that has to be done in a way that allows us to share the costs, right? So that's where the marketplace begins to come in. Um, so we can be consuming the data without necessarily depending on putting up a new piece of electronics, another battery, a new network, another, you know, another widget. Where are we in that continuum? Well, this is not this year, right? This is not a 2021 prediction no more devices right we're going to see a lot of adoption of devices but then i really do think we're going to start seeing them reduce again and it's really about creating that um, more um, uh, fluid mechanism of exchanging data but necessarily it's got to be done in the light it's got to be done with privacy awareness it's got to be done with consumer and uh, um, participation or else we'll never get to that level but once we do, I think then we can start thinking about more generic sensors, um, fewer pieces of electronics in our lives, um, and and um, hopefully actually impact the environment um, yeah. in a good way. Be less less batteries in landfills, less plastic, less you know electronic manufacturing. Um, that may not be great news for the hardware guys out there, but um, I think for you know human life, I think <laughs> I think it'll be a, a net positive. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean. From a sustainability point of view, I mean, it's widely spoken about the mining for precious materials for batteries yeah. is is becoming or is a real issue. Um, the need, and it's a great analogy that you've used there with your pet dog, right? The, the, the fact that a sensor for this, a sensor for someone else, that's not sustainable. And you can't grow an ecosystem around... Uh, more and more hardware and it's all and it's also seems illogical doesn't it um I, I think the main issue that we're going to face to make this work is is that governance around commercial gains absolutely and 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 what's within the public interest 
we've had some people on the on the show in the past in fact there's a for anyone listening and for yourself as well tim um a company called edgex talking about a pin working with the autonomy institute um in north america about how we're gonna link um places together with 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 certain hardware and 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 a, and a time for that um but I think you're absolutely right. Um, but it's how that those hardware manufacturers are then going to monetize that, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, perhaps from a commercial element, the more and more people plugging into that hardware, then then they have to pay some sort of uh, as a service based charge for the using that hardware, right? That could be one way. Um, but it's interesting, and I think moving forward, that's something that everyone needs to be really mindful of. When we look back in history, though global players haven't played that nicely together have they no, you know? no. and it's and it's something that we're we're going to have to we're going to have to to address because this is going to be a real problem isn't it it is but you know you can see if you do look back even in our history um you know we faced the same problems with um, mobile telephones right where we had proprietary regional standards um, devices that were built specifically for them and the attempt to lock people in and that lasted what 10 years mm -hmm. um, before particularly in Europe there was just the um, massively strong pressure to integrate to allow roaming to rationalize charges um, and you know as the mainstream adopted cellular mobile technologies um, the world has have to had to catch up it was painful in the middle right I remember my first cell phone traveling, um, you know, $500 charges for a simple phone call because I wasn't aware of which network I was roaming on. And, you know, we went through a lot of a lot of trouble. Um, today's world is, is very different from a mobile perspective. And I think IoT is, is tracking along as well. We've had proprietary networks, proprietary standards, devices built for specifically. But I, I think we're accelerating faster with IoT along very similar curves that we did with uh, with mobile technology mobile mobile phone technologies um, and I think it'll follow the same kind of general path to the point where we get to um, you know roaming and public networks and you know uh, for the people who make hardware for the people who own the networks it's going to create a commodity pressure that I think is inevitable it may not be good news but I think it is it is what time it is um, but I do think the consumer will win out over in the, in the long run, and then people will have to compete by creating much better devices, you know, more accurate sensors, more robust data, more dependable. Um, and then I think that's where the data marketplace can overlay. As the data gets more um, uh, reliable, as it gets more standardized, that market can open up. Um, because now you're you're trading in, in things that are consistent um, and from data it's it's about data formats right it's about data quality data format because um, if I'm if you and I are going to swap temperature data it better look like the same stuff right yeah. <laughs> um, it can't be all proprietary and unique and all that stuff so that's the kind of point in time problem we're solving at microshare is that you know creating that um, generic format that creates the fungibility ultimately of data for a given purpose um, but I really do think that the the market will move in that direction inevitably. Yeah, I just I just hope we can get there quicker than we can from the telecom point of view, you know, um, and that we don't have a situation with SMS messages, for instance. So obviously, it's well known that an SMS message originally conceived to uh, for engineers, right, to state faults on the line, 
then they realized it was popular, started charging, uh, and now it's eventually become free again and then moved the course onto you know, uh, proprietary platforms. Um, I, think, I think if we can get there quicker, that would be great. Um, but it's interesting what you said about the fungibility of data, the, the usability of that data. Um, and you know, we're talking about GDPR, and I don't want to get too deep into it, but uh, a lot, a lot of the uh, you know um, clauses and, and, and points around GDPR are actually really relevant. So you know, the the timely use of this data is it is it fit for purpose? Are, are you you know are, are you asking the right questions? Are you asking too much? How are you storing it? So on and so forth. So um, it's it's certainly an interesting time, and I think when it comes to the mass of data that can be achieved from from sensors public sensors that people perhaps aren't necessarily aware that they're sharing uh it's something that we really need to address yeah. tim i'm i'm super curious as to your thoughts on the predictions we always ask people this on the show and we always ask to say where are we going what what's happening um i'd really like to to learn from a specifically a, a, a from a building point of view where you think uh, we're heading over the next five years and what people on the street will see when they go into a building and what, uh, you know, and what a smart building will mean in the future. Yeah. Um, you know, sitting here in 2021, most of the building um, concerns are really about returning people to a healthy, productive work environment. Mm. And the tensions are that for at least uh, knowledge workers who have been forced uh, to work from home, now have an awareness that it is entirely possible in many cases to continue to do that and at least in some sort of hybrid capacity so what we are seeing is that you know this return to work and the new way of working that just can't be i, I think that there was already trends in place you know you see thing uh, companies like we work um, challenging the common paradigm for where where you work how you work how you lease space how companies engage with the physical um, and uh, the quarantines have just driven that into overdrive. So I think for the next two years, we're really going to see both the awareness of building owners and employers about the need to ensure the safety so that we don't end up back in lockdowns, um, whether it's COVID or the next um, uh, pandemic that I think all people are now aware can happen at any time, right? Um, there's nothing specifically unique about this point in time. It's happened before. We've just been better at containing it. So I think now that we're aware that healthy spaces need to be a thing, that um, flexibility in, in work, uh, where we work, when we work, how we work, um, need to become just part of the normal wrapper. So what we're seeing very much is you know, people are doing probably less contact tracing, but people aren't banning it. The people who uh, have early adopted uh, contact tracing are still expanding it. Um, why are they expanding it? Well, it's not for this current moment anymore. It's so that they don't get caught flat-footed for the next one. And we're seeing this in places where, you know, generally are um, high-tech manufacturing, um, pharmaceuticals specifically. Um, these people know that they need to be able to show up for work and deliver the next um, set of vaccines when the next challenge occurs and they're building out an infrastructure that will transcend the current you know COVID quarantine um, so that's a, that's a specific part of the market for places that run you know hospitals or office buildings or airports 
what they're worried about is, all right, everybody's going to come back to work. Um, there's a need to be more aware of the cleanliness um, holistically of the space. Is the air being circulated properly? Are the surfaces being cleaned? Um, because it may not be a surface transmission problem, but people are very aware of clutter. They're very aware mm -hmm. of filth. They're very aware of uh, leaky water now. Um, and um, so how do I manage the invisible, like air turnover? How do I manage the, the, the visible and present that will make people nervous in the current moment, like cleaning? Um, so things like predictive cleaning, things like uh, air quality monitoring, um, things like, you know, uh, density management, right? Are too many people in this space? Um, all of these things are really topical right now for people trying to get their arms around it. But in the long run, what companies are really worried about is for many large companies, real estate is the single biggest line item expense, right? On their balance sheet or on, or on their, on their, um, their earning statements. Um, cause it's either a fixed cost cause they own it or it's a ongoing cost cause they lease it. And now they're like, well, I've had these buildings empty. So why am I spending so much money? What is the optimal arrangement of that uh, asset to get the most of the productivity with the least amount of risk? Um, all of a sudden, everybody's asking this question. Can I do more with less space? Um, and what would that less space look like? Would it be in the city center or would it be distributed in, in the countryside? Would it be coffee shops or is it you know, private rooms? You know, and the, and the, so people are now looking at how do I really understand how people are using their spaces optimally, and then how would I rebuild my uh, my organization around that physical level of interaction to optimize that for the new world? That's what the next five years in the built IoT spaces, measuring that, getting smart about it, generating actionable insights, allowing companies to squeeze down their footprints while hopefully improving the quality of life for their employees and their customers. Um, uh, it's, it's a lot of turmoil in one little space, but um, I, I think it's I think that's exactly what we're going to be um, faced with in the next couple of years. Yeah, Tim, fantastic insights. Thank thank you so much. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Um, you know, you've really got some 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 great views on this and and some things to really think about as well. You know, um, yeah. it's uh, it's 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 fantastic. And and for 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 MicroShare, uh, obviously, business is doing really well. More funding. Um, where, where do we expect to see you guys? What what's on the horizon? Obviously, I know you can't say too much, but uh, um, obviously, growing and and doing more and more projects. Yeah, you know, the um, it's been. The past year has really been about going global. Um, in 2019, most of our business was in Europe um, and and heavily focused on the UK. Europeans have been much much faster in adopting wireless technologies. Um, and so IoT and sensing as a service, uh, no exception to that, uh, just ahead of the curve. Um, but you know, the last year has really seen a global explosion in the awareness. So I think a lot of geographies are, are, are playing catch up so we're we're now throughout Asia. We're um, we're now um, very deeply penetrated in North America, South America. Um, so for us, it's been a challenge of that physical uh, growth, right? The logistics challenges, the um, distribution, acquisition, and installation. And so that's really where we've been spending a lot of our time is making it much easier um, to get these things uh, all across the globe. So. Um, you know, I, I think in the coming years, you're going to see us popping up in a lot of different 
uh, spots um, and um, and hopefully beginning to weave all these global experiences together in a way that allows us to learn from each other um, because insights you generate in Sao Paulo um, may be very applicable to insights you might generate in Bristol or, or need to consume in Bristol. And in the end, I think it's about all of us globally sharing best practices um, for sustainability, for uh, human well-being, and um, at the end of the day, uh, fungible, high-quality data is the core of doing that. And I, I think that's what uh, we're going to see us this, these, um, in these next couple of years. Yeah, fantastic. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great. We've really enjoyed having you, and uh, we wish you all the best in the future. My pleasure, Tom. Thank you. Thank you.